Chapter Eleven of the Fighting Shepherdess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fighting Shepherdess by Caroline Lockhart. Chapter Eleven. Kate keeps her promise. One of the things which Mrs. Abraham Patton's worst enemy would have to admit in her favor was that, strictly speaking, she was not a gossip, though this virtue was due as much to policy as to principle. It was her custom, however, to retain in her memory such morsels of common knowledge news as she accumulated during the day with which to entertain Mr. Panton at evening dinner, for she observed that if his thoughts could be diverted from business it aided his digestion, and he slept better so she strove always to have some bright topic to introduce at the table. Having said a silent grace, Mr. Patton inquired mechanically, "'Will you have a chop, Prissy?' Since there were only two, he did not use the plural. Mrs. Patton looked across the fern centerpiece and made a mouth as she regarded the chop doubtfully. "'I'm afraid I'm eating too much meat lately.' Impaled on the tine of the fork, the chop was of a thinness to have enabled one to read through it without much difficulty. Mr. Panton placed the chop on his own plate with some little alacrity. As his wife took one of the two dainty rolls concealed in a fringed napkin on the handsome silver bread tray, she endeavored to recall what it was in particular that she had saved to tell him. Oh, yes. What do you think I heard today, Abram? Abram was figuring interest and murmured absently, I have no idea. They say, in her sprightliest manner, that the girl who killed her lover was refused credit at every store in Prouty. No one would trust her for even five dollars worth of groceries. Rather pathetic, isn't it? Mr. Patton looked up quickly. Who told you that? Everyone seems to know it. Mr. Patton frowned slightly. If you mean Miss Prentice, I wouldn't speak of her in that fashion, Priscilla. Mormon Joe's Kate, then, if you like that better, replied Mrs. Panton, nettled. Or Mormon Joe's Kate, either, curtly. So sorry, I didn't know you knew her. Do you? Mr. Panton, who, at his own table, was given the privilege of taking bones in his fingers, pointed the chop at her. Let me tell you something, Priscilla. Impressively, someone who is cleverer than I am has said that it is never safe to snub a pretty girl, because there is always the possibility that she'll marry well and be able to retaliate. The same thing applies to one who has brains and is in earnest. I've made it a rule never to disparage the efforts of a person who had a definite purpose and works to attain it. It's about a fifty-to-one shot that he'll land something. Mrs. Patton looked at her husband suspiciously. There were times when she had a notion that she had not explored the furthermost recesses of his nature, when she wondered if it had not ramifications and passages unknown to her. It had. It was Mr. Patton's dearest wish to come home boiling drunk with his hat smashed 
and his necktie hanging. He longed to kick the front door in and see his wife cower before him. The mental orgies in which he indulged while sitting placidly in the bow window, automatically snapping his Romeo against the heel of his foot by a muscular contraction of the toes, would have curdled the blood of Priscilla Panton. It was an interesting case of atavism. There was little doubt but that Mr. Patton was a throwback to a sportive ancestor who had kept a pacer that could do little better than 2.13 when conditions were favorable, but had rendered the family homeless by betting 160 acres of black walnut timber against a horse that left him so far behind that the spectators urged him to throw something overboard to see if he was moving. All this was family history. Mr. Patton fought against his predilection to gamble on anything or anybody as he would have fought an impulse to take human life. It did not escape Mrs. Patton's attention now that her husband had not answered her question as to whether he knew this notorious character. She repeated it. Mr. Patton returned her searching look with one in which she could discern no guile, but his words irritated her still further. I happened to be in the bank the other day when the girl was begging Wentz for time on the loan which Mormon Joe had contracted for running expenses. Mr. Patton explained with somewhat elaborate carelessness, it wasn't due, but they were putting the screws on her to serve their own purpose, or Nifkin's purpose, rather. He wants her leases. It was a mistake of judgment, for she would have been a good borrower. Bankers are born, not made, anyway, complacently, and Vernon isn't one of them. It seems to me his judgment in this instance is excellent, Mrs. Patton contradicted tartly. It is quite evident the businessmen of Prouty agree with him, since none of them will trust her. That doesn't alter my opinion, Mr. Patton's reply was calm. It's the person behind a loan that counts, anyway, and not the security. If I had been in Wentz's place when she said she could handle those sheep and meet the obligation when due, I should have believed her. Again, Mr. Patton waved the chop for emphasis, as he added, with something very like enthusiasm. She has honesty, strength of character, intelligence, personal magnetism. It appears to me that you made rather a close study, considering your limited opportunity, Mrs. Patton interrupted acidly. She interested me. Evidently. But why this sudden change of opinion? I've heard you say a hundred times that all women are pinheads in business. Because she's no ordinary woman, Mr. Patton defended. The girl hasn't struck her gait yet. Her mind is immature, her character undeveloped. But if she doesn't make good, he paused while he fumbled for a convincing figure, I'll eat my Panama. Mrs. Panton stared, both at the intemperate language and the rare display of animation. From a state of indifference, she felt distinct hostility toward Mormon Joe's Kate stirring in her bosom. Mr. Patton should have known better. He did know better. But he had felt reckless, somehow. To make amends, he said ingratiatingly, This mince pie is excellent, Prissy. Did you tell me there was no meat in it? Tomatoes, frigidly. It's mock mincemeat, 
a triumph in economy, an achievement. But Mr. Patton's flattery and conciliating smile were alike futile. Like many another overzealous partisan, he had made for Kate one more enemy. It seemed eons ago to Mrs. Toomey that Jap had appeared to her in the light of a handsome, conquering daredevil, whose dash and confident personality made all things possible. The real test of Toomey's character had come with his misfortunes. So long as he had money to spend and could ride, arrogant and high-handed, over the obsequious shopkeepers who benefited by his prodigality, and the poor ranchers who had not the means and often the spirit to oppose him, he continued to appear to her in the light in which she had first seen him. She adored his imperious temper, his erratic, lavish generosity, his quixotic standards, but with the reversal of their fortunes she was slowly brought to realize that money had provided most of the glamour which surrounded him. To be imperious, with no one to obey, makes for absurdity, and this trait, in his poverty, made him ridiculous, as did the extravagances in which he indulged at the expense of necessities. It was not often Mrs. Toomey would admit to herself the real cause of the heart-sickness which filled her as she watched her husband deteriorate, but with every excuse known to a woman who loves, she tried to bolster up her waning faith in the man and his ability. With an obstinacy which was pathetic, she endeavored to keep him on the pedestal where she had placed him. She listened with a fixed smile of interest to the extraordinary schemes he outlined to her, sometimes hypnotizing herself into believing in them, until he returned with the exaggerated swagger which proclaimed another failure. Then she would join him in his denunciation of those who could not see the value of his plan and refused to aid him. But the conviction that Jap had not the qualities to win material success did not hurt as did the knowledge that he was not too brave to lie, too proud to borrow from those he considered his social inferiors with no notion of repaying the obligation, nor too honest to obtain money by any subterfuge that occurred to him. When she had attempted to borrow money from Abram Patton, the light esteem in which that astute person held her husband had been as painful as her disappointment, for it was her first definite knowledge of others' estimate of him. Since then, with her eyes opened, she had come to see that Jap was regarded in Prouty as something between a joke and a pest. Mrs. Toomey was thinking of Mormon Joe's murder one morning while she dusted, and of Kate, conjecturing as to what would become of the girl when the bank foreclosed, and she lost everything. She sighed as, with the corner of her apron, she removed the smudge from her nose before the mirror. Wasn't there anything in the world any more but trouble for people who had no money? She glanced casually out of the window, and stiffened in something very like horror. Kate was in front, tying her horse to a transplanted cottonwood sapling. What if Prissy Panton should see her? She was visibly agitated when she opened the door for Kate, stammering a welcome that had a doubtful ring. But Kate did not appear to notice. She looked older 
Mrs. Toomey thought, in swift scrutiny. Yes, she had suffered terribly. Her heart went out to the girl, even while she glanced furtively through the windows to see who of the neighbors might be looking. While Mrs. Toomey wondered what excuse she could make for Kate's presence, if anyone called, she indicated a chair and said nervously, I've been hoping to see you and tell you how sorry I am for all that's happened. I've been disappointed that you haven't, Kate replied simply, for your friendship has loomed like a mountain to me in my trouble. She was still counting on it. Mrs. Toomey got out of frightened. Really? When we shook hands on it up there in the draw, Kate went on sadly, I didn't dream how soon or how much I should need you. And women do need each other in trouble, don't they? Earnestly. Mrs. Toomey nervously tucked in her scolding locks. Er, of course, constrainedly. Her mind was rambling from Jap to Mrs. Patton and the vigilant neighbors. Kate rose suddenly and, crossing the room, stooped to lay her gloved hand upon Mrs. Toomey's thin shoulders. Looking into her eyes, she demanded, "'You don't believe I did it, do you?' This was a question Mrs. Toomey could answer truthfully, and she did, with convincing sincerity. "'No, I don't.' "'I knew it. There was a joyous note in Kate's voice and gratitude. I was sure you were true blue, and I know I'm going to love you.' Lifting the woman to her feet with an arm about her shoulders, Kate kissed her impulsively. She was so slight, so crushable, that Kate experienced a sense of shock, as one does when he feels the bones of a little bird through its feathers. Her frailty appealed to something within the girl that was like masculine chivalry, awaking a desire that was keener than ever to protect and help her, while, as before, Mrs. Toomey felt the magnetism of the younger woman's health and strength and courage. Nevertheless, she was panic-stricken at what Kate was taking for granted, and her quick little mind was darting about like some frightened rodent from corner to corner, thinking how she was going to disentangle herself from the situation with the minimum of hurt to the girl's feelings. There was a suggestion of her former buoyancy in Kate's manner. Her eyes had something of their old-time sparkle, as she reached inside the blousing front of her flannel shirt and laid in Mrs. Toomey's hand a packet of crisp banknotes secured by bands of elastic. You see, I've kept my promise. Mrs. Toomey stood motionless, staring. Why, where did you get it? When speech came back to her. That's my secret, Kate replied gently, but it's yours to use as long as you need it. Without warning, Mrs. Toomey burst into tears. I, I, I can't help it, she sobbed on Kate's shoulders. It's so unexpected. Relief was paramount to all other emotions, but she vowed as she wept that she would show her gratitude and would be Kate's friend as she had promised, and she would, the feeling of the money in her hand, gave her courage, defy Prissy Patton if necessary. Kate and Mrs. Toomey separated with the warm handclasp of friendship. Mrs. Toomey waited in a tremulous state of eagerness for her husband's return. It was months since she had known such a feeling of relief. 
It was as though years suddenly had dropped from her. She went about the house humming, trying to decide upon the most effective way of surprising him, and planning how she would spend the money to derive the most good from it. At intervals, she opened the top drawer of the bureau and looked at the banknotes to be sure she was not dreaming. They would pay a little on their most urgent bills to show their good intentions, and then buy supplies enough to render impossible any such experiences as those they had undergone recently. A goodly portion would be kept for emergencies until Jap got into something. Mrs. Toomey glowed with gratitude to Kate and the delightful sensation of relaxed nerves after attention. She felt as peaceful as though she had taken an opiate. Therefore, when Toomey came in swaggering and with the black brow which told her of disappointment, she smiled at him tranquilly. The smile irritated him. I wish you'd stop grinning. Too happy to be perturbed, she replied in mock severity. If I cry, you resent it. If I smile, you stop me. Really, you know, you're rather difficult. You'd be difficult, too, if you had to try to do business with a bunch of tightwads. We've nothing to grin about, let me tell you. Haven't we? Archly. He eyed her radiant face and ejaculated. Lord, but you look simple. What ails you? Nothing fatal, she laughed gaily. But tell me, Jap, what went wrong this morning? The question recalled him to his grievances. You know that scheme I told you about last night? Which one? Mrs. Toomey searched her memory. Don't you ever listen when I talk to you? I was so sleepy, apologetically. The one to glom all the land between Willow Creek and the mountain. Oh, yes, vaguely. Couldn't you interest anybody? How can you interest clods who have no imagination? What did they say about it? Scales told me to go out and hold my head under the spout, and he'd pump on it. If ever I get a dollar ahead to pay my fine, I'm going to work that son of a gun over. Mrs. Toomey sobered. The flippancy of the grocer was additional evidence that her husband was considered a lightweight, even in Prouty. It hurt her inexpressibly. The desire to work her surprise to a dramatic climax suddenly left her. She said quietly, Our worries are over for the present, Jap. She walked to the bureau and took out the money. There is five hundred dollars. He stared at it, at her, and back again, incredulously. Is this a joke? Finally. She shook her head. Kate Prentice. He shouted at her. What, you borrowed from her? She promised it to me before the... The, you can't keep it. But Jap, I say you can't keep it. But Jap, she whimpered. Do you think I want to be under obligations to that? She put her hand over his mouth. You shan't say it. She's been generous. She kept her promise when neither you nor I would have done it, and I'm going to stand by her. You'll do nothing of the kind, savagely. Now listen, Jap, she went on pleadingly. We need this so terribly. We're in no position to consider our feelings. We can pay it back the minute you get into something. I don't understand why you feel so strongly about her, but since you do, I respect you 
for not wanting to take it. However, the loan isn't to you. It's to me. It's a business proposition. And when we return it, we'll pay interest. He was listening sullenly, and she read in his wavering look that he was weakening. You must be sensible, Jap. Be reasonable, for we haven't a dollar. And look, here are five hundred of them. We simply can't refuse. She saw the greedy glint in his eyes as she held the money toward him and knew that the battle was over. I'll not have anything to do with it, anyway. She could have smiled at his continued pretense of reluctance, his fictitious dignity, if it had not saddened her. As she returned the money to the bureau drawer and slowly closed it, she was conscious that in her heart she would have been glad and proud if he had not yielded. End of chapter 11 Recording by Richard Kilmer Rio Medina, Texas